When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Light the fuse. Well, this is not mission difficult, Mr. Hunt. It's mission impossible. Difficult should be a walk in the park for you. Uh, it's all got to do with the rabbit's foot. Please don't make me go through you. Sir, Hunt is the living manifestation of destiny, and he has made you his mission. Kittredge, you've never seen me very upset. And you really think we can do this? We're going to do it. Welcome to Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. I am Drew Taylor, joined, as always, by the absolute dynamo that is Charles Hood. Charles, how you doing? I am great, Drew. Thanks for calling me a dynamo. <laughs> Has anyone ever called you a dynamo before? I don't think so. That's definitely a first for me, so I appreciate it. Thank of you. Of course, of course. You're pretty great, too. Well, you know who's really great? <laughs> Uh, Eddie Hamilton. Eddie yes. Hamilton. Yeah, correct, correct. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes we've yes. had Eddie on the show before, and we're thrilled to have him back to talk and go in deep about uh, Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning Part One. This was recorded back in what July? I think so. Yeah, early July. Yeah, this was so. This is a while ago. So this is. Uh, it's just great to to talk to Eddie about uh, this movie. Yeah. Oh, actually, you know, we, we before we get into it though, we should say. Oh, the digital release for Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning Part One is. Today, the day of the release of this episode, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 hits digital. Ah, cannot wait. And there are a lot of Eddie Hamilton-related special features. So if you're a fan of Eddie Hamilton, I think this would be a yes essential purchase. And this is this episode and this, you know, some multiple-part episode, it's going to be a great kind of uh, companion to that digital release. Is it? Let me just do the math here real quick. <laughs> Actually, you're right, Charles. It is a great companion. I'm glad that math worked out. Thanks. Yes. Great. <laughs> <laughs> One of the special features involves the editing of the movie, and another involves a commentary track with none other than writer-director Christopher McQuarrie and Eddie Hamilton himself. So, yes, pretty exciting. Very exciting. Super awesome. You got to get that and, uh, yeah, bust that out, watch the movie again, and listen to this uh, interview. Yeah. Do we want to set this up in any way? I think that's all we got to say. I think uh, I think we let it speak for itself. Yeah, I mean, if you if you're new to the Eddie Hamilton universe, he is, I would say, one of the key creative figures in the Mission Impossible franchise. Yes, and he also edited and was nominated for an Oscar for a little film called Top Gun Maverick. So he is a genius, and he's also one of our favorite people on earth. So we're yep. so excited to share this interview with you. Should we just? Should we dive right in? Let's do it. Let's dive in. All right, here we go. All right. We're here with the man, the myth, the legend, the guy who made fun of me for drinking a 
full calorie Coke at 10 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Eddie Hamilton, <laughs> how are you doing? I am great. Um, I am great. It is uh, the movie's just out around the world. It's good to see people um, reacting. I'm getting some nice emails from friends who've seen it, and Chris and Tom have just done their whirlwind tour of movie theaters on the East Coast, which I'm sure you you saw that. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's great actually just to to finally have the movie out there after three years of hard work, or nearly three years, but. I mean, I started my I started in February of 2020, really. But I didn't do much for 2020 until September. But the previs of the train wreck sequence was st- started in February 2020. Well, how how close to that previs did the actual sequence end up? So the sequence, in terms of the kitchen car, so the running up the roof, then the kitchen car, then the dining car then the bar car was it was that order in the previous we just tightened it a lot because the previous was a lot longer and we removed an entire chunk of action because some of the audience feedback was that the sequence was too long which is not the case on its own but it is the case in the cumulative action effect of the third act of the movie which is you know, basically action fatigue at that point and people saying it feels too long before they get to the grand piano. So we kept a lot of it in but we and we kept compressing it, but the audience kept telling us, no, it's still too long. And then we, we worked out that the if we were to remove one piece of action, which was directly after the zero G, you know, when Ethan and Grace kind of go up in slow motion and land, there was a whole other beat in that carriage and... The zero G was the highlight of that carriage. And so we just moved on to the next bit. And the moment we did that, everyone was happy with the length of the sequence. So that fixed that problem. But everything else was in there, you know, so it was very cool. But the idea of this train carriage kind of sliding off the edge of a crumbling bridge, we've been working on for three years. And so it's great that it's done finally. Thank heavens. Well, last time we talked to you was was Top Gun Maverick. And you told us that was the most challenging editorial yes. thing you've ever done. So where does where does this this is the second most challenging thing. I mean, I think because we were doing two films at once, plus we had covid, plus we had well, I mean, this year has been especially nuts because we were sort of doing test screenings in January, February, then in March we had the aircraft carrier, then we had the BAFTAs and the Oscars, and then we went to the Arctic. So we called that March Madness. <laughs> if you speak to McHugh, ask him about March Madness. But that was that was intense, and we did a week, and we did a few days of pickups in the middle of March as well. And so when I went to Svalbard, when I went to the Arctic with Chris, we were editing the scene that we'd shot like the days before, which was the last piece of the puzzle of the movie in terms of like a complete scene, say because. I'm sure you've heard this, but the scene with in the Venice safe house before Ethan and Ilsa hug on the roof of the safe house, you know, at sunset, that scene was reconceived quite late because we needed to uh, reintroduce the audience to the White Widow as a character. So when she turned up in the nightclub, you weren't like, who's this? and explain about John Lark because the audience would be like, why is she calling Ethan Lark all the time? 
if you haven't seen Fallout, which you know most of the audience probably won't have done, or, or at least we discovered in our test screenings that half the people in the test screenings had not seen a single other Mission Impossible film. <laughs> and wow. But 80% of them had seen Top Gun Maverick. But, you know, for, for for the younger generation or younger people, say under the age of 30, maybe they haven't come across Mission Impossible before. So we had to address quite a few things in that scene. And Ilsa also had a... Uh, she had had an interaction with Gabriel in the distant past, which was just one coincidence too many in this story. So we reconceived her relationship with Gabriel to be something uh, more like she was hearing it secondhand from people in MI6, which is what's in the film now. So she's recounting things that her MI6 friends have said rather than experiencing directly herself. And we wanted to do some callbacks to the airport. So so we wanted to have Benji, we wanted to have a callback to where Benji says, who or what is the most important thing to you? Which is what the bomb asks him in in the airport. So that's kind of a satisfying callback. And then there's a mention of the word source code or the, the phrase source code. Ethan and, sorry, Benji and Luther talk about source code, which will come up and pay off in the next film. So there was quite a lot of things that we needed that scene to do. And they all came into focus right at the end. So that was our last kind of couple of days of pickups that we did. And then the other thing that we did, I'm sure McHugh may have mentioned this to you guys. So um, originally, after the scene where Grace is offered the choice and she says, can I think about it? And Simon says, the train leaves in six hours or whatever he says. Uh, he, sorry, Benji says that. Um, then we went to Ethan and Luther talking about, you know, I've got to go. And is, is you know, what about killing Gabriel and that whole scene there? And then what happened was he says, do not alter the plan. And then a dart hits Luther in the chest and then a dart hits Ethan in the neck and they spin around and the Grey Widow, as we called her, which was Grace in the White Widow mask, we referred to her as the Grey Widow, to distinguish between the White Widow and the Grey Widow in the third act. She was holding a dart gun and shooting and she had just shot uh, Luther and Ethan and she was basically then she walks over to Ethan and takes the key out of his hand and says, sorry, Ethan, I'm strictly single, which is a callback to the line in the airport. And she walks off and then the whole night goes by and they're, they're, they Ethan wakes up. So there's this great transitional shot where we push into Ethan lying on the ground and then you see the sun come up and then we pull out and he wakes up and he walks over to Luther and says, how, how long have we been out? Six hours. And there's a very funny scene where Benji walks in and goes, wow, that was the best sleep I've had in months. <laughs> and he, looks, he doesn't realise he's been darted. And the, the camera comes around and you see the dart sticking in his back and he hasn't got a clue that it's there. <laughs> And he's like, what are you talking about, Grace? What do you mean she does? After the chat, we just had? No, of course not. And then he turns around and Luther plucks the dart out of his back and goes, brother, like that. And he's like, what? And then it's like, what are we? What is she going to do? You know, the interesting thing about that, we're, we're diving right into to second act spoilers here. So the interesting thing about that was the audience flatly rejected the idea of Grace outwitting the team again, right? Uh, and especially after she's had that whole emotional scene where she accepts the choice. And so on our first preview, people just went, no, this isn't, 
we're not uh, ha- we don't have any sympathy with Grace, and it makes Ethan and the team look a bit foolish that they've trusted her again. And because she outwits Ethan in the airport, she runs away. She outwits Ethan in Rome, you know, when she locks into the car. And people were like, I don't know, they just didn't like the fact that she outwitted them again um, in Venice. So we reconceived that scene so that the mask machine broke and she ended up having to go on her own. And then Ethan saying, I promise I'll get there. On the, I'll promise I'll be there, you know. Uh, which meant that the audience was much more connected with her character when you meet her on the train and you're kind of rooting for her to succeed on her own. You know, she's just joined the team and she's thrown into a mission on her own. And it recontextualized the the scene where she gets the key from the widow and he and she says, where are you, Ethan? Because she's like, Ethan's supposed to be here. And then you realise because... Um, Zola's knocking on the door that she's going to have to go through with the mission rather than choosing to do it and trying to negotiate her way out of the meeting with whoever the buyer is because no one knows who the buyer is going to be but she's going to try and like sell the key and make some money and and go off on her own you realize that she has to go through with it because Zola's banging on the door but then she has the idea oh maybe I can use this as a way to you know sell the key and and protect myself and find a way out given that it's this american you know it's kittredge who ethan has told her about in the previous scene if you remember you know yeah in the in the choice scene so that was re- that was a really interesting uh shift that we made but the moment we made that change and that's part of the pickups that we did in that march madness between the it was a is basically we did the aircraft carrier then we went to the oscars then we came back and did those pickups then we went to the arctic so it was extremely intense that month and we really were all just our body clocks were all over the shop we had no idea what we were doing but it fixed the problem of the audience rejecting grace as a character at the end of the second act so um it was a very elegant solution that the guys came up with there but it was difficult because Rebecca Ferguson had to come back from June and, you know, it was, you know, the Avengers had to assemble again in on the set just for two days. Um, but, you know, through the magic of producers and great production skill, it all worked out. Um, great. There we go. We'll be back with more from Eddie Hamilton after the break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The the overall, I mean, the the pacing of this movie is out of this world. Like, 
I, I just like can't. I mean, we I can't compliment you enough for like the, so a movie kind. that is over two and a half hours long, and it feels like it's ninety minutes. Yeah, like yeah. it is a thrill ride. It grabs you. Wow, that's amazing. That is such compliment. Thank you, Charles. I mean, even for, we saw an early version of the of the Rome car chase. At, at CinemaCon. Yes, you did. Yeah. At and CinemaCon. how much it changed yeah. in that last, whatever it was, two months. Like, it's crazy. Like, you, you yeah, yeah, it is crazy. it so much to just take out any little bit of air. Uh, absolutely. So yeah, just, yeah. It just moves. Like, the, the movie is nonstop. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And and we did. So, like, you are aware, because I think, I think, you know, you may have visited us <laughs> when the movie was like, four hours long i think did i tell you how long it was i probably didn't because it was it would have been a bit scary to hear four hours i think simon told us that was yeah because edgar saw the one with the intermission okay but anyway that yes correct so so we we had a nearly four hour version in october last year october 2022 and what happens is that McHugh he did this with fallout as well he just books a screening room and invites 70 friends (laughs) to come and watch the film and in this case we hadn't actually pressed play and watched the movie through from beginning to end ever McHugh and I had been working on it piecemeal bits and bits and pieces and pieces and there was virtually no score right and no virtually no sound effects because for a movie like this average sound is worse than no sound in a screening like it's better just to have silence and people can imagine the epic train and the chase around venice and all the action in the cars in rome um we had some to be fair but but there were were whole chunks where it was just completely silent you know for like 10 minutes at a stretch and we had dialogue that was the only thing we had really but it's a very strange experience. And McHugh stood up and said, look, this is you're going to watch raw sausage meat here. We haven't even watched it all the way through from beginning to end. And at that point, when the, you know, I, I am I've done other movies where the, the movie, where the film started out, you know, very fat and you have to take out, you know, an hour and a half, which is almost what we ended up taking out of this film. But we didn't lose really anything of substance of like that's a whole chunk of a scene. The closest thing was the introduction to Ethan was different in that version of the film. And we ended up reshooting that much simpler introduction with the the food delivery guy, you know, and what is the oath and all that stuff. Again, that, that was actually shot about a month before we finished uh, the actually delivered the movie. It was the very last thing that we did. And then, and then literally about, three days before we locked the movie and we delivered and McHugh posted that image. No, was it? I think he even posted the lock before then. Yeah, he did. But we we did the close-ups of the photographs on the table in the mission briefing. That was the very last thing that we did. And so it's kind of weird when you watch a movie that's four hours long. Because it's, and so we did two and a half hours that got us to the end of Venice and then an hour and a half for the train. <laughs> and it's weirdly spiritual because you, you, you're in a room and you're watching the movie silent with with 50, 60, 70 people. But they're all kind of quite gripped by it, which was very reassuring. And I remember a couple of McHugh's friends who were writers came out and they went, that was completely gripping from beginning to end, even though there's no music. We thought, OK, well, that's encouraging that there is no real confusion there. 
like they could say, look, it needs a lot of work, but clearly it's going to work when you finish, you know, all the compression that you're going to do. And then McHugh and I just really go to town and we look through the movie and we compress it and we do it in many passes. And the first version we screened was like, we'd taken an hour out already. So it was like, I think 258 maybe. And then the next version was like 252. And then we got it like down to 248. And then when we're really down to the last week or two of editing and the notes are still, and we're doing other friends and family screenings and the notes are still coming back that the movie feels too long. Then you roll up your sleeves and you really go through every frame of the movie and you're interrogating every tiny emotional beat and you are taking out any air that you possibly can everywhere in the movie to get it down. And I never thought we'd get it down to 2.36, which is what it is now without credits. Um, McHugh and I were both very surprised and every... So we'd go through a reel and we'd get like you know, we managed to get 40 seconds out of that reel, say, you know, and then we'd go through and we'd get like, oh, another 12 seconds out. And that's like, oh, yes, we got 12 seconds out, <laughs> which, you know, means a big deal when when you're dealing with, you know, a sequence, which is like the airport, you know, which is, you know, nearly 18 minutes or something. And you're you're thinking, where else can we get stuff out? Like there was a great introductory shot of Paris in the airport. And it was like, oh, it's so good. But it's 12 seconds. It's got to go. And then there was a there was a great shot introducing Gabriel where he was walking in and going up the escalator into this epic wide shot of the airport. We were like, ah, that's 15 seconds. That's got to go. And so you all this stuff that McHugh loves and he's like, oh, do we have to take it out? And and he knows deep down that we've got to because the, the movie's just too long. And we have to get to that point, Charles, where you're saying the movie just moves. And Chris and um, Tom's always like, it's got to feel like a rocket ride. And the other <laughs> thing that Tom kept saying to us is he says, you've you've always got to feel like you're leaving the audience wanting more. At the end of every scene, you don't want them to be full. This usual meal analogy of the movie's a very rich meal and you don't want any particular course to fill you up so that you're not ready for the next course when it comes. And, you know, for example, in Rome, just after, you know, Grace goes down in the elevator, there was a scene of Ethan running down and the the glass elevator's going down and Ethan is desperately trying to get Chase Grace down. But it was like, I don't know, 20 seconds. We were like, nope, she's just got to come out the front of the magistrate's office straight away. And there was a lot more of her driving the cars and crashing into like various vans and stuff, you know, when she's like tr desperately trying to drive the police car through cars. There was like three times as much of that and we were like no it's and it all stayed until literally like the last 10 days of editing after nearly three years you've got to remember this and we we're like no that's got to go that's got to go like how tight can we make it so that ethan catches up with her quickly and then the crash but then when they drive off in the bmw there was a section that you saw in CinemaCon where they get outside the wedding cake in Italy and she starts doing donuts. Do you remember outside the wedding cake in the BMW? And he's going, he's going, um, you know, break, 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 break. And she stops it. And then the car drives off again and they did all the visual effects and it's really dynamic and cool. Some of the shots are still in the trailers, but in the audience's mind, the car chase stopped and then started again. And then she comes around the corner and smashes into the scooters and then it stops again. Do you see what I mean? So you want the audience to just be on the ride with them. And I remember saying to McHugh, I think we're going to have to cut that about a year before. And he was like, no, I think it's great. I think we're going to keep it in. And then eventually, 
when we're really like putting our foot on the trash, guess what? You know, I, I, I say, I'm going to try something. You're not going to like it. So I tried just lifting it out. And then so they just drive past the wedding cake and smash into the scooters. And he was like, yeah, it's probably better, isn't it? It's better. Then there was a lot more of Ethan driving the BMW. There were loads of cool stuff of him driving one handed. All of this will end up on a deleted shots montage, which will be on the home entertainment release of the movie. At least I hope it will be. We, I've prepared one and it'll be like the one on Fallout where you got to see all the cool stuff that we took out of that movie. We'll be back with more from Eddie Hamilton after the break. It's interesting. And we just we just kept going through each reel and we'd watch each reel like, you know, once an hour throughout the day. And then so we'd do it and then we'd we'd go through it and we'd just look, can we trim two frames? Can we trim three frames? Can we what happens if I take six frames off there? Can I make that transition quicker? Can we cut to this quicker? Can we how much can we compress the Spanish steps and it still makes sense? You know, we tried a version where at the bottom of the Spanish steps, she only goes around once, but it was actually much more entertaining for her to kind of miss the turn and go round again. <laughs> but we did a version where we compressed that. And then where when Ethan and Grace are riding in the Fiat down towards the, we called it the um oh, I can't remember where where they where they stop outside the police station, all the cars are there. There was a there was a term that the production used. I can't remember, but the the shots of the Fiat like racing down the streets with all the cars breaking and it like nipping in and out of the cars, you know, that was again twice as long originally, and we we just compressed it right down. But that's what you do when when you're watching these movies and you're trying to you're trying to make it feel make make the pace feel perfect, so the audience doesn't notice that it's two and a half hours. It, it's really difficult, and it, and you're throwing out a lot of great stuff, which you felt was essential. You know, they felt everything was essential when they were filming it. Ethan running around the Venice canals. There was originally like loads more of that where the entity was directing him here and entity was sending him to see Briggs and Dagar and and then he was ending up in dead ends and he was trying to find Grace and there was tons of it like four times as much five times as much as there is in the movie now all beautifully lit like gorgeous shots of Tom Cruise in these alleys and loads more of Grace running around Briggs and Dagar and again it's like when you get to it the story is the entity takes over Benji's laptop and guides Ethan into the narrow alley so that he has a fight with um, Paris and another goon. That's the story, you know, and and Grace ends up with Gabriel on the bridge. And we have to really just dial that and, and drill down into the pure essence of what that is. Um, and it's it's one of the few times in the film where the entity is actually doing something bad to a character because obviously there's the submarine at the beginning and and they're talking about it in the dni they're talking about the entity but in terms of it actually kind of being a bad ai that's kind of like the worst thing it does is is send ethan into the trap with paris and it'll do a lot more obviously in the second film that's kind of where we're going with all this but in order to get the pace working, that that is the process that you go through. It is just day after day after day of going combing through the movie and looking at every single frame and going, does this frame need to be in the movie? Does this frame need? To... And and literally, sometimes you're just stepping through the shots, looking at 
every little movement that an actor makes. And I'm taking air out. There's this thing called a fluid morph on a media composer on an avid timeline where if an actor pauses, I can, you know, we remove a second out of their delivery and, and you can kind of fluid morph it up. Or sometimes with Ving, what I'll do is I'll just run all his pauses at 200% so that everything he says is just a little quicker in between ah. each. So there's wow. less dramatic way in between nice each tricks. delivery. Yeah, yeah, little tricks. But but then, you know, you're looking at a dialogue scene and you're like, well, we've got six seconds out of that dialogue scene. That's actually significant in, in getting on with it. And but that's where you are at the end of these movies when when they're very long, you are you're you're really focused intensely on getting the pace just perfect. Sometimes we over trimmed. So the scene between Ethan and Paris at the end, where he's saying, What does this unlock? and he's holding up the key. I did a version of that that was like half the length. And we just cut straight to the information, you know. And it was just it was just dead. There was no feeling, there was no emotion at all. And Tom and McHugh watched it and they went, look, we can see what you're doing, but there's just nothing there anymore. And it was interesting, the, almost the first cut of that, that McHugh and I polished up, it remained like that in the movie almost. I mean, we, we trimmed a few frames here and there, but I have to say, Pom Clementieff in that scene was so amazing in terms of her acting chops and in terms of the emotion that she was bringing to the character. And... I, I don't know. When I first saw those dailies, I was like, damn, this is a slam dunk scene. It's so good. And Tom was so good. Haley was great. You know, it, the scene just kind of cut together so well and easily. And it didn't, it really didn't change that much. And I remember Pom speaking French. She is, that's her first language. And her acting, interestingly, improved a little bit between speaking English and French so that it became a more emotional scene. Um, and it actually happened in her screen test. I'm sure that you may have heard this story from McHugh, but when we did Pom's initial screen test, which must have been, I don't know, like I'm going to say July 2020 maybe or, or even earlier maybe, I don't know, April, I don't know. We did her screen tests and she was reading, like McHugh writes dummy scenes for the cast that are nothing to do with the movie so that they they feel missiony, but there's no, there's no substance in it for the actual story. And she came in and she did a reading. And uh, then in between takes, she started speaking French to kind of pep herself up. I think that was it. Or maybe she was talking to another crew member who was French. And McHugh and Tom looked at each other and they went, wait a second. And they said, uh, Pom, can you just do the same scene in French for us? And she did it. And it was like mesmerizingly good because she wasn't having to think about translating to English. And so we were like, wait, there's something in this. It'd be very cool if she just speaks French because she doesn't say much in the film. You know, that dialogue scene with Ethan is the most she says in the whole movie. But that they they unlocked that element of her character, which is extremely it's a great, it's a great flavor, you know, to have a character who just speaks French in the film. She's almost like a, like a silent film character. The way yes. That she's yeah. No. It, and immaculate dress sense as well. Like we all loved whenever she turned up on set in a new cost, a new outfit. We were all marveling at what the you know wardrobe department had done there. I loved every outfit that she had. I thought what how, what she was given to wear was terrific, and she worked. 
And Pom trained, I mean, so did Haley, to be honest, but Pom and Haley trained so hard for this movie. Um, Pom's martial arts and her core strength and her, you know, stunt driving in that Hummer and all that stuff, it was very impressive to watch. I mean, she was having the time of her life, don't get me wrong. And I'm sure you've heard the story where I'm pretty sure Tom mentioned this was it at the Rome premiere? You guys were there when he talked about her having a Mission Impossible poster on the wall of her bedroom. And she was, and when she went to her dojo to train in martial arts, she said, I'm going to be a Mission Impossible one day. And that was like a good 12 years before she was cast in the movie. And so she really was living the dream. It was, um, it was, it, and, and she's so nice, so humble and just works damn hard on the set. You know, I, I had a, the best time working with her anytime we interacted. There were some bits of splinter unit while I was directing her, like some of the, the stuff where she was driving round, like the close-ups of her driving round Rome, we did back at Long Cross. We didn't do them in Rome because there's no point when you're on a close-up of somebody. But McHugh would set the three cameras. So there'll be three cameras doing a kind of three-quarter and a profile and a, and a more and a tight close-up. And we built like a little circuit at Long Cross Studios. And in order to simulate going down the steps, the, the Hummer, it was unsafe to drive the Hummer down the steps with her driving the car. So what we did is we put these kind of large logs uh, or, or like two by fours on the tarmac and she would just drive over them and it would rattle the car and rattle her and give us that great motion blur, that in-camera motion blur, which sells the fact that she's going down the steps in Rome. So some of that I would be directing just because McHugh would be doing something else over there and then he would be watching the monitor or sometimes I'd go over to him and show him some playback and go, is this what you're after, you know? But she was so nice. I love working with Pom. We're back. We are back. From the future. <laughs> Just kidding. We, 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 uh. we stayed here the whole time. But, you know, when the, when the present is filled with Eddie Hamilton, you don't want to go to the future. You want to stay right here. And just soak yeah, it all you in. You want to be present. You want yes. to be very present. Yes. It was a great uh, start of this conversation. I mean, we heard some some about some various deleted scenes, uh, including the, the hilarious to hear about Benji waking up from being darted. Mm-hmm. You know, he gets the dart in his back and he thinks he had a great night's sleep. <laughs> that was hilarious. <laughs> um, and then uh, also fascinating to hear about how, like half the people in the test screenings hadn't seen any Mission Impossible movie, but 80% of them had seen Top Gun Maverick. I thought that was really, really interesting. I mean, it just shows you Top Gun Maverick. It's just uh, monolithic in its... Everybody saw it. It was just a force to be reckoned with. Uh, but uh, we, we, we got our work cut out for us, getting the, the mission movies out there. You know, we got to let people... Get people to watch more. more. More people need to watch. Yeah. Who were these 80% per- people? Where have they been? <laughs> you know? Yeah. It was also interesting to hear about grace double crossing the team right before the train scene and you can see you can see how that wouldn't have worked and it's amazing that they you know it's just like it's so great how they they take the time to fix these things you know they make it just right in the edit you know reshooting a lot of honing going on yeah yeah it's it's great uh and then also yeah to hear that the movie was four hours long 
and the, and the, and that whole process of having that initial screening with no music and how they you know they have a philosophy how it's it's better to have no music whatsoever than placeholder music. I just yeah, it was all fascinating. That's all. Just always great to talk to Eddie. And of course, we've got more on the way. You got to come back next week. We've got more from Eddie Hamilton. We do indeed. And and before we go, I just have to remind people of some things, Charles. First of all, that Mission Impossible, as Charles said at the beginning of the show, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 is available at every fine digital retailer right now. But if you love physical media, you have to have a a real copy in your hands. The Blu-ray, DVD, and 4K Ultra HD discs will be out at the end of the month on October 31st, which we love because, you know... As Erica Sloan once said, the IMF is Halloween, and we couldn't think of a better (laughs) date for that. Yeah, no better way to celebrate Halloween. No. Uh, Obviously, come back next week. As Charles said, we'll have another brand new episode of Light the Fuse. And be sure to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you're listening. Um, Yeah, if you want to follow us on social media, we are Light the Fuse Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And... I think that's it, Charles. Yep. Come on back next week. Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast, is produced by Charles Hood. That's me and Drew Taylor. Our supervising producer is Alexandra August. This episode was edited by Luke Burson with music by Kevin Blumenfeld. Original Mission Impossible themes by Lalo Schifrin. This podcast is a production of Paramount Pictures. All rights are reserved. This message will self-destruct in five seconds.